as the children are getting the papers and are heading back to their seats. Uh, parents, it only feels right and appropriate for me to encourage you to preach the gospel to your kids. It's something we should do always, but as uh, Phil just pointed out, this is a very wonderful portion of our catechism because the gospel becomes very clear here, having been prepared uh, by the law. So preach the gospel to your children. We long to see their conversion. We long to see, Lord willing, uh, their baptisms in the years to come. That's really a wonderful thing to think about, isn't it? So many little ones and, uh, Lord willing, so many baptisms uh, coming our way in the future. The sermon text for today is Genesis chapter 18, verses 16 through 33, and the New Testament reading will be 1 Timothy 1, excuse me, 2, 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 15. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then the men set out from there, uh, the men being those three that visited Abraham in the heat of the day. And they looked down towards Sodom. And when Abraham went with them to set them on their way, the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He said, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Let us turn now to 1 Timothy 2 and look at verses 1 through 15. Paul writing to Timothy the pastor, First of all then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, 
for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So far the reading of God's most holy word. Our prayer is that the Lord would bless the preaching of it now and that He would help us also to apply it to our lives today. One of the things that God promised to Abraham is that he and his descendants would be a blessing to the nations of the earth. That promise is familiar to you and me. We know it well, and we also know how it has played out with the passing of time. But that promise must have sounded incredible and even a bit mysterious to Abraham when God first uttered it. Abraham, in you, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. He must have wondered What does this mean, that the nations of the earth will be blessed through me? Who am I that I should have an impact upon them? He must have puzzled over what the fulfillment of this promise would be. As I said, you and I know the answer. Because we live 4,000 years after the call of Abraham, God's plan of redemption has progressed since then. What began as a seed has grown into a mature tree And you and I have the benefit of looking upon something more developed and mature. But for Abraham, everything was still in seed form. For him, everything was in the stage of promise. You and I have been blessed to see much of the fulfillment. So what did God mean when He promised that the nations would be blessed in Abraham? What did He mean by that? Well, above all things, we know that the Christ, who is the Savior of the world would come from him. Abraham would produce Isaac, Isaac would produce Jacob, and from the sons of Jacob, the nation of Israel would emerge, and it would be from Israel that the Christ would come into the world. And so while Isaac was Abraham's immediate seed, Jesus the Christ was his distant but most significant seed as it pertains to the promises of God. And this Christ would live, die, and rise again as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the Hebrews... No, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins, not only of the Hebrews, but of the world. The Christ that came through Abraham and his offspring was and is the Savior of the world. Indeed, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. 
And so this was the ultimate and supreme fulfillment to that promise made to Abraham when the Lord said, In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It had reference to the Christ who would come from him. So while it is indeed true, though, that all of these promises ultimately find their fulfillment in Christ, Jesus, more can be said. Not only would Abraham and his offspring bless the nations when the Christ came, uh, he himself, Abraham himself, would be a blessing to the nations, even in his own lifetime. His children and his grandchildren were also to be a blessing to the nations, and so too the nation of Israel was to be a blessing to the nations, even prior to the arrival of the coming of the Christ. The story that we are considering today from Genesis 18, 16 through 33, it helps us to understand how Abraham and his descendants were to bless the nations of the earth. They would be a blessing to the nations. This was made clear by the promises of God made to Abraham. But this story, I think, brings some clarity to the question of how. Abraham was wondering, I think, what does this mean? Here, he learns something about what this means. The question of how is answered here. How were Abraham and his offspring to be a blessing to the nations of the earth? And two things are made clear in this story. One, Abraham and his offspring were set apart by God to intercede for the nations. This was their God-given task, their God-given purpose. Abraham and his offspring were to intercede for the nations. And two, Abraham and his offspring were set apart by God to promote righteousness while living in the midst of the nations. And so intercession and righteousness are the main themes of the story that we are considering today. First of all, let us consider that Abraham and his, and his offspring were set apart by God to intercede on behalf of the nations. If I were to state this a bit differently, I would say it like this. Abraham was chosen he was blessed and he was set apart by God so that he might stand in the gap, being eager to see the nations reconciled to God. He was to be concerned for the nations that they might also come into a right relationship with God and give glory to His name. This principle is clearly seen in the inter intercessory role that Abraham takes in the story that is before us today. I want you to notice how the Lord enticed Abraham to intercede on behalf of the people of Sodom. Verse 16, Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham went with him to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Do you see that this promise here is at the heart of this story? God is saying, um, should we hide this from Abraham? Look, look at who he is and what he is going to be. All the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through him. And, and so the Lord asks this question. Uh, the men that set out from there are the three men that Abraham and Sarah showed hospitality to in the previous story. Two of them were angels and the other was the Lord. We know that. Abraham learned that with the passing of time. These are the ones who set out from there. And Abraham joined them. As a good host, he journeyed with them for a time. Now it is unclear if the Lord said what he said in verses 17 and 18 silently and to himself, or if he said it to the two angels privately, or did he say it to the two angels in Abraham's presence so that he could hear it. I tend to think that Abraham heard the Lord ask the question. I think he asked it out loud with Abraham standing there. For the entire episode was for the purpose of revealing things to Abraham 
so that he might participate in the plan of God. Listen yet again to the question. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? Brothers and sisters, the vast majority of the plans and purposes of God are hidden from us. Have you ever thought of that? Uh, We do not know His plans for later today, much less tomorrow. God knows, but His purposes are usually hidden from our sight. I say usually because there are rare instances where the Lord chooses to reveal His purposes to His people. In particular, the Lord made a practice of revealing His plans to His holy prophets who lived in that old covenant era. And Abraham was one of these unique individuals who received this kind of special revelation from the Lord. Given that Abraham would surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth would be blessed in him, the Lord determined to reveal these particulars to him. And what did the Lord reveal? Verse 21 tells us, Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. I want you to notice very quickly five things about these two verses, verses 20 and 21. One, the Lord obviously did not need to go down to see anything. You understand that. He sees all things, all the time, with perfect clarity. Indeed, He knows all things. Never has the Lord gained an ounce of knowledge. He's never learned anything. For He is God Almighty. He is omniscient, all-knowing, omnipresent. This we know to be true of the Lord. And yet the text does say that the Lord went down to see something. Two, this talk of the Lord going down to see is to remind us of a previous story in the book of Genesis. That is, the story of the Tower of Babel. Remember that before the Lord dispersed the peoples to disrupt their unified rebellion against Him, the text tells us that He went down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. So these two narratives, the story of the Tower of Babel and the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and the eventual destruction of those cities, they are to be compared. They have some things in common. Uh, What do they have in common? Men living in all-out rebellion against the God who made them. Three, this talk of the Lord going down to sea as if He were on some kind of reconnaissance mission is to be understood as an act of condescension and revelation. The Lord came down to sea, not because He could not see from where He was seated in the heavenly places, but in order to kindly reveal His purposes to Abraham so as to bring him along. Do you see that the Lord condescended here? He came down low not because he needed to come and see, but so that he can bring Abraham, his chosen one, along. He desired to reveal something to Abraham, his chosen one. He desired to reveal it to him so that he might know more about the purpose that he had as God's chosen one. For the grave sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, notice, produced an outcry that reached the ears of the Lord. Where did this outcry come from? Well, it came from those who suffered as a result of the sin of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Sin, though it might produce a kind of momentary pleasure, always results in suffering, doesn't it? It results in our own suffering. When we sin, we ourselves suffer. 
But oftentimes, very often, it produces suffering for others as well. We should consider these things. Five, the remark, I will go down to see whether they have done these things, and if not, I will know, is meant to show the patience of the Lord and His perfect justice. If, If and when He does act, He does not act rashly. He does not explode in anger when He pours out His wrath. Uh, When he does pour out his wrath, he does so having perfectly considered the situation. And so language is used in this passage, uh, language that is common to men and usually not common to God. Men need to go down to see. Men need to go learn of the situation. God does not. And yet that language is applied to God in order to tell us something true about him, uh, that he is a patient God, that he is wise, that that he is long-suffering with sinners. When he does pour out his wrath, it is not an explosion of uncontrolled anger, but a perfect execution of justice. That is why this human language is being applied to the Lord here in this narrative. Verse 22. Excuse me, let me back up just a moment. The thing to notice in this episode is that all of this information that the Lord revealed to Abraham concerning his intent to deal with the terrible sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, it compelled Abraham to intercede on behalf of these people. That is the thing to notice in this narrative. When the Lord revealed these things to Abraham in the way that he did, it was meant to, 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 it was meant to compel Abraham to begin to intercede. It was meant to bring him along in that intercessory role that the Lord had set him apart to take. Uh, though it was not stated so directly, Abraham knew what the Lord was about to do. He could connect the dots, couldn't he? He was about to pour out his wrath. And so Abraham began to plead with the Lord in prayer. Here is where we come to verse 22. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord Then Abraham drew near. Isn't the language beautiful here? There Abraham is just standing before the Lord, but he begins to draw near. And here we have that rather well-known dialogue between the Lord and Abraham. Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you, he says, to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked... Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. We're going to return to consider Abraham's prayer more carefully in the second point of the sermon. But for now, I want you to consider this. Abraham prayed for Sodom and Gomorrah. His attitude, notice, was one of concern for the people of that place. And so he interceded on their behalf, asking that the Lord would show mercy. Put differently, his attitude was not one of hatred for or indifference towards the wicked. He looked down upon those cities, those cities that were indeed filled with wicked sinners, and he felt concern for them, and he therefore interceded on their behalf. Brothers and sisters, I ask you this. Are you as concerned for the lost as Abraham was? When you look out upon the world, I ask, do you feel compelled to pray, to ask that the Lord would have mercy upon them? 
Or do you have a different attitude, an attitude of disdain or an attitude of indifference? Abraham, as he surveyed the situation, as he considered what the Lord was about to do, as he looked down upon Sodom and Gomorrah, he felt compelled to intercede. He felt concerned. And so he prayed to the Lord. Notice that Abraham was faithful to intercede, and I think this means that his descendants were also to be faithful to intercede on behalf of the nations. I do not think that this story is given to us, and I do not think that the story was given first to Israel from Moses' hand, just to say, hey, look at what Abraham happened to do. But it is set before us as a model. It is set before us as an example. If you indeed are the descendants of Abraham, and if his job was to intercede for the nation, so too it is yours. I think it was a message being communicated, first of all, to the nation of Israel. They were to take this intercessory role. They were to have this understanding of themselves. They existed as a nation, not only to be blessed, but to be a blessing to the nations. As you know, Israel often fell short of this calling, didn't they? They often acted in pride, assuming that God was only concerned for them, that they were somehow superior to the nations, that God was impressed with them, but not the others, etc., etc. But this concern for the nations was not entirely lost within Israel. There was always a remnant that retained a proper understanding of God's will for them as His chosen people. I came across Psalm chapter 67, and I think it is a testament to this fact that that though oftentimes Israel forgot God's will for them in terms of their intercessory role, it was not lost altogether. Listen to Psalm 67. It's to the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm, a song. This was a song that was to be sung by the, by the Hebrew people, by the people of Israel. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face shine upon us, they pray. Selah. That your way may be known on earth. Your saving power among all nations. Do you catch that? Lord, bless us, your people, the Hebrew people, the nation of Israel. Bless us that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth, Selah. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear Him. So here is a psalm that Old Covenant Israel would sing, and it reveals that they, they did know this. Though they lost their way from time to time, they did understand this, that they were blessed by God, to be a blessing. They were set apart from the nations in order to intercede for the nations. They were to promote the glory of God, not only amongst themselves, but with this intent that the nations of the earth would indeed be blessed in them. God's will for Abraham and his offspring was that they intercede on behalf of the nations of the earth. Abraham was faithful to do it. Israel did it, though not always. And let us not forget that Christ, who was the true son of Abraham, was also concerned for the nations. I hope you can see what I am doing here. I am saying this story tells us about what Abraham did 
in order to serve as as an example for Israel. But we must take it yet a step further and recognize that when the Christ did eventually come, Abraham's true seed, what did he have concern for? Not the Hebrew people only, but all the nations of the earth. Listen to the words of the Christ. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay my life down for my sheep. Who did Christ die for? His sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Now, I will admit you need to know something about the Gospel of John to understand what is being said here. But Christ is saying, I know who it is who has been given to me by the Father. They hear my voice. They will respond to me. And here he is ministering amongst the Jewish Hebrew people at first, ministering amongst that fold. But he says, I have sheep that are not of this fold. He's referring here to the Gentiles, to the nations. His concern was clearly not just for the Hebrew people, but that all the peoples of the earth would have him as Savior and Lord. What a wonderful insight this is. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Have I not taught you over the years that this word world does not mean every person without exception? It's referring to all the nations of the earth. He is Savior, not of the Jews only, but of the world. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Matthew 28, 18-20, And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so, friends, if Abraham was to intercede for the nations... If Israel was to intercede for the nations, and if Christ interceded more than that, if Christ died and rose again, not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world, that is 1 John 2, 2, then does it not follow that we too are to take up the role of intercession for the lost? This is why we read from 1 Timothy 2 at the beginning of this sermon where we are told, First of then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for who? Paul says for all people. For all people. He has in mind here all kinds of people, all types of people. He clarifies that when he says for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved. And to come to the knowledge of the truth, his concern is not for a particular people, a certain race of men, but for all the peoples of the earth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. The the way to understand this text is to say this, Christ died for all the peoples of the earth, for all nations, and not for the Hebrew people only. We should not make the same error that Some of the Hebrew people made, assuming that they were God's precious and chosen people, end of story. No, they were God's chosen and precious people, and they were to take up the role of intercessor. They were to be concerned for the salvation of all the peoples of the earth, all nations. Abraham was called to intercede. Let us be faithful to intercede if we are his children. The second observation that we must make concerning this story is that Abraham was called to promote 
and preserve righteousness by the Lord who always does what is right. I want to consider again that question that the Lord asked concerning Abraham in verses 17 through 19, but from a different vantage point. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? Pay careful attention here. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Abraham and his offspring were to intercede on behalf of the nations, but they were also to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Abraham and Israel after him were set apart as a holy people. They were to keep God's law. This they were to do personally, and this Israel was to do nationally. And here is yet another way in which the nations of the earth would be blessed in them. Abraham and Israel were to preserve and promote righteousness in the world. I want to say just a few things about righteousness. One, notice that Abraham and Israel were to do righteousness and justice because the Lord who called them is Himself perfectly righteous and just. If the Lord is their God, and if He is righteous, then they as His people should be righteous too. This is really the principle that Peter stated when he wrote to the Christians, saying, But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. That is 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. The people of God are to do right, that is, they are to be holy, because they belong to a God who always does what is right. He Himself is perfectly holy and just. That Abraham was to do righteousness and justice because the Lord who called them is himself perfectly righteous and just is seen really in two places in this text. Uh, One, notice that Abraham was chosen by God that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Uh, Righteousness and justice is the way of the Lord. Do you see it there in the text? This is the Lord's way. He always does what is right and just, and therefore, as His people, Abraham and Israel and we today, are to keep it. We are to keep that way. We are to reflect Him and be like Him in this respect. Two, notice how Abraham pleaded with the Lord concerning Sodom and Gomorrah. He pleaded with the Lord on the basis of His righteousness. When he came to intercede for that place, when he came to ask the Lord, will you show mercy to these cities? He did it on this ground. He he, he appealed to the righteousness of God. Look again at verse 23. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty. You you, you know this well by now. Uh, Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? And and what does he say? Far be it from you, Lord. (laughs) Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you... Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham knew something of the character of his God. He knew that the Lord was the judge of all the earth. He knew that about him. 
He also knew that he was perfectly righteous and just. And so he appealed to God on this basis. I find it truly remarkable that Abraham knew this of the Lord. How did he know it? How did he know that the Lord was judge of all the earth? Notice, not just judge of him or judge of the Hebrew people, but judge of all the earth. How did he know that his God was perfectly righteous and just? He must have known it because God revealed it to him. I think he probably revealed it to his forefathers who lived in the world in the past. The gods of the nations, remember, were not known for their righteousness, their holiness, or their justice. This was not a common attribute of the gods of the nations, who were no gods at all. But the gods of the nations, they did what they pleased. That was the view. They did what they wanted. They were known to be capricious and fickle. They just woke up and sometimes they were in a bad mood and they did what they wanted. And who are you to question the gods? You know. But Abraham knew the character of the Lord. He knew that the Lord, the one true God, the creator of heaven and earth, who had entered into covenant with him, was righteous, holy, and just. He knew that this God, his God, the one true God, was actually bound to act according to his character. And so Abraham pleaded with him on that basis. Friends, did you know that there are some things that God cannot do? Did you know that? We are accustomed to saying that God could do anything and that nothing is impossible for Him. And generally speaking, that is right and true. But there are actually many things that He cannot do. Hebrews 6.18, if you need a scripture text to prove it, says that it is impossible for Him to lie. It is impossible for God to break His promises. It is impossible for Him to act in any way that is contrary to His holy and righteous character. God cannot sin. He cannot be less than perfectly holy. And here is a rock-solid anchor for the soul. He is incapable of doing wrong. He is incapable of doing anything that is unjust. I will admit we live in a world that is so filled with wickedness, it can sometimes be difficult to make sense of what we see happening around us. Would you agree with that? But we do have this solid foundation to stand upon. We belong to the Lord. We worship and serve the Lord who is holy and just, who always does what is right. This was a foundation that Abraham stood upon, and it is the foundation upon which he stood when he pleaded with the Lord to show mercy to Sodom and Gomorrah. Three, consider this about the righteousness of the Lord. Uh, Because the Lord is righteous, He must punish sin. Here I am saying a few things about the topic of righteousness, and this is the third thing. He must punish sin. God does not do wrong when He pours out His wrath upon the wicked. Do you believe that? He does not do wrong when He pours out His wrath upon the wicked. Did you notice that Abraham did not intercede for Sodom in the way that many modern evangelicals would intercede? How might they intercede? Many Christians might draw near to the Lord in prayer saying this, Lord, far be it from you that you would do such a thing. Shall not the Lord who is nothing but love only show grace? 
I think that is a way that many evangelicals today would intercede on behalf of the wicked. But that is not what Abraham said. He knew that it was right for the Lord to judge the wicked. That was right. This he did not deny. His appeal was that the Lord would refrain from pouring out His wrath upon the righteous along with the wicked. But here is where Abraham received an education. He thought there were 50 righteous in Sodom, didn't he? But were there? No, there were not 50. And he sensed that, didn't he? I think, I don't know, he must have just intuitively sort of noticed it by the expression on the Lord's face, uh, right? Um, I won't wipe it out if there are 50. Pauses for a little bit. What about 45? What if there are five lacking? How about, how about 45? I won't wipe it out if there are 45 there. I will not subject the righteous to my wrath as I pour it out upon the wicked. I will not do it if there are 45. How about 40, Lord? 30? 20? Nope, he began to sense there were not even 20 there. The pleading stops at the number 10, verse 32. Then Abraham said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry. He thought maybe he was pushing it, you know, with the Lord, I guess. Um, And I will speak again this once. Suppose just ten are found there. The Lord answered, for the sake of the ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way, and when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Abraham did not appeal to the Lord by saying, How can a God who is love pour out wrath? For Abraham knew that it was right for the Lord to judge the wicked. Instead, he appealed to the Lord in this way, It would be unjust for you to sweep away the righteous along with the wicked. And the Lord agreed with him, didn't he? He would not do it. He would not subject the righteous to the outpouring of his wrath alongside the wicked. The lesson that Abraham learned was that there were far less righteous in Sodom than he thought. Not 50, 45, 40, 30, or 20. And as the story unfolds, we learn that there were not even 10. Only four were led out of Sodom as the Lord poured out his wrath upon that place. And even these four did not possess a righteousness of their own, did they? If they were righteous, it was because they had been made righteous by faith, just as Abraham was, the righteous of another having been imputed to them. This is all God's goodness and grace. Uh, Friends, no mere human is righteous. You understand this. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one, their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive, the venom of asps is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, in their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Romans 3, 10 through 19. There is no one righteous. No, not one. Christ Jesus our Lord was, but He was more than a mere man, was He not? No one is righteous. No, not one. Do you believe that? Or do you hold this view that We are born righteous and that there are good people in the world. There are good people in the world, comparatively speaking to others. But no one is righteous before God. We are all lawbreakers and deserve His condemnation. We are not righteous. We are, in fact, deserving of God's wrath. And if that sounds strange to you, then you have not comprehended the severity of our sin. That is the problem. You have not comprehended the severity of our sin. The fact that God would show mercy to us at all is truly an amazing thing. We ought to be caught up with that. 
There was no one righteous. There were not 50. There were not even 10 in Sodom. The ones who were pulled out before wrath was poured out were pulled out by the grace of God alone. For do you see therefore that the righteousness of God is a terror to the wicked? If you are still in your sins and not cleansed by the blood of Christ, then the fact that God is righteous should not comfort you. It should terrify you. It means that God will rightly respond to your sin. He will act in justice. He will pour out the just penalty. And do not forget that the wages of sin is death. This is a very sober thing, is it not? I had this experience not long ago uh, to sit through a, a number of, uh, um, for a number of hours in a, in a murder trial and, and just to see the seriousness of that environment. It, it was breathtaking almost, you know, it was almost overwhelming uh, to see how serious it is for someone to be judged, you know, in such a serious manner. Uh, how much more so, brothers and sisters, should we tremble at the thought of God's righteous judgment to all eternity? Tremble for ourselves, yes, to be sure that we are in Christ, but also look out upon the world saying, Lord, have mercy. And how diligent we should be to proclaim Christ. He is our righteousness. He is our only hope. Five, the righteousness of Christ is a comfort to those who have been made right through faith in Christ Jesus. Uh, The one who has had their sins washed away need not fear the righteous judgments of God. Also, the one who has been made righteous can take solace in the fact that God will make all things right in the end. This should be a comfort to us. God will make all things right in the end. He will judge with perfect equity. The Christian should not rejoice over the death of the wicked, but there is a degree of comfort that comes with knowing that God will set things straight. This is especially comforting, I think, to the one who has been wronged by evildoers. Romans 12, 19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. We should always take up this intercessory role. We should always long to see God's mercy poured out. We should pray for the lost that they be saved. That is all true. But there is this other side of the coin that we must consider. When you have been severely wronged by others, there is comfort in the righteousness of God. There is comfort to know that though the world is so filled with wickedness and though those who do wickedness seem to get off the hook as it were in the world, We know that God will set it straight. We need not avenge ourselves, but we are able to leave it to the wrath of God. Vengeance is His. He is the one who will repay. This is what He has promised. And so do you see, brothers and sisters, that Abraham was called to promote and preserve righteousness by the God who always does what is right. God is righteous and His people are to do righteousness and justice. Abraham was being prepared for this calling as the Lord involved him in his deliberations concerning Sodom and Gomorrah. It was an education for him. Israel was to do right as she kept God's law. She was to shine as a light to the nations. Christ did this perfectly. Never did He violate God's law. He was righteous and He died in the place of sinners like you and me. His righteousness is now given to all who believe upon His name. And you and I, having been made righteous through, the, through faith in Christ, are to promote and preserve righteousness as we live as exiles in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. I wonder, have you ever thought about the effect that your holy living has upon those living around you? 
Think about the effect that Lot's holy living had upon the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. It restrained the outpouring of wrath of God for a time, I think. God had to pull him out of that place. And what if there were 50 righteous in that city? That, that place would not have been subjected to the outpouring of God's wrath. But the, the righteous would have served as a kind of shield or buffer to the outpouring of God's wrath. This becomes very applicable to us as we live here in this place. I, I, I know it is easy to gripe about our country. It is easy to gripe about our state in particular and where it is heading. But think of this. God has called us to live as sojourners in the world. We have a role to play in this place, do we not? It might feel sometimes like we are living in Sodom and Gomorrah. I don't think we're there yet, to be honest with you. It sounds like Sodom and Gomorrah was even more corrupt and wicked than what we experienced. I don't know. But could it be that the Lord is calling us to stay here, to remain here, to look out upon the lost, not with indifference or indignation or hatred or disdain, but to look out upon the lost in this place and to feel compassion for them, to plead on their behalf, Lord, show mercy. Lord, show mercy to take up that intercessory role of prayer to proclaim the gospel to the lost who are around us. Could it be that that is the Lord's will for us? I think it might be. It seems to be the pattern, right? Throughout all of redemptive history that God has a people that are His, called out of the world to shine as light in darkness. I think we need to be careful, brothers and sisters, about fleeing too quickly from the wickedness that we perceive around us. We have a calling. We are to function as intercessors and also we are to pursue righteousness in this place. We are to promote and preserve righteousness. There there is a powerful impact that you have on this culture that you're probably usually not even aware of. Just you living holy in this place, observing God's law, living in obedience to it, It has an impact upon others that you're probably not even aware of. And so, brothers and sisters, I would appeal to you in this way. I would say, you are a child of Abraham. You are the Israel of God. The New Testament says it. If you are in Christ, then are you not to do what Christ Himself did, which is to sit and to eat with sinners? He was criticized for it. And he looked at his critics and said, Is this not the point? It's not the healthy who need a physician, but the sick. What are you doing? You've forgotten your calling. You've separated from the world, but this is your calling. You Hebrew people thought that it was all about you and your blessing, but you are blessed to be a blessing. And you've lost sight of that. And so, brothers and sisters, if you are a true child of Abraham, if you are the Israel of God, if you are in Christ Jesus, then should you not be concerned to intercede and to promote and preserve righteousness in this place. The Lord might use it in a number of ways, your righteous living in this place. He might use it as an example to others. He might also use it to convict others as sin. You know, as others look at your way of life and they compare their way of life to it, they say, maybe something's wrong with what I'm doing. It might function as a kind of law to them. He might use your righteous living to restrain the spread of wickedness in the world. He might use your righteous living to delay the outpouring of His wrath upon a particular place. The point is this, brothers and sisters, we are to be holy in all of our conduct since it is written, 
you shall be holy, for I am holy. In conclusion, what did it mean that Abraham would be a blessing to the nations? Ultimately, this promise found its yes and amen in the coming of the Christ who came from Abraham's loins. But Abraham and his offspring were also called to intercede for the nations and to promote righteousness as they lived in the midst of them. Again, if we are Abraham's offspring, having been clothed with the righteousness of Christ through faith in His name, let us be faithful to intercede for the lost, to preserve and promote righteousness in the world until He returns. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, do help us to live as your people in this world. It is difficult, but do help us, Lord. Help us to know your law. Help us to keep it. And as we do, Lord, may we never, ever, ever be puffed up with pride. A pride that causes us to put our noses in the air. A pride that causes us to look down upon everyone around us as if we were better than them. For we confess to you, Lord, we are not. The righteousness we have is all by your grace. It is not our own doing. So Lord, help us to live right before you humbly. And if we have lost it, Lord, help us to regain a true and sincere concern for the wicked around us, Lord, who are still in their sins. Help us to pray for them. Make us ready to share the gospel with them as you give opportunity, Lord. Make us faithful. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.